Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you from California, joined, as always, by co-host Michael O'Neill in Syracuse. And let me say, happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day to you, the viewer listener, and happy Earth Day to you, Michael O'Neill. Hello, and uh, happy Earth Day to you, David, and a hello and happy Earth Day to everyone in our audience. And I should say right up front that for you, the viewer listener, it is, in fact, Earth Day. But for Michael and I, it's the day before Earth Day. So thanks to the miracle of technology, we're actually pre-recording this show because both Michael and I have events that we are going to be going to and doing on Earth Day, but definitely wanted to pre-record this. What that means is you'll not be able to participate on the Facebook comments live. You can drop the comments in. Michael and I do read those, but we won't be able to be taking your comments and questions as we normally do. That does give me the opportunity to remind you that here on A Green Way Forward, we continue to build an audience and we encourage you to please share this on your own Facebook page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to us on a podcast, please make sure to share that podcast with your family and friends. And lastly, and most importantly, perhaps, please go to the website, agreenwayforward.org and sign up so we can continue to keep you abreast of upcoming special programs, projects, and basically premiums that we are cooking up. So, Michael, before we get into the substance of this show, I really want to share how exciting it was for me to have associated students invite me to give the keynote presentation at their Earth Week uh, celebration, which will include a trashion show, which is basically a fashion show made out of trash that uh, students have uh, reclaimed from the waste stream. But it also gives me the opportunity to actually go deep on the origins of Earth, of Earth Day and what it means. And I really want to take a moment to acknowledge that Earth Day itself began in 1962. Uh, and it was and correctly, uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson gets credit for uh, originating the idea. But I think we need to go even deeper and understand that it was in the early 1960s that more and more Americans were becoming keenly aware of the effects of environmental de degradation and pollution. Uh, in 1962, Rachel Carson's bestseller, Silent Spring, raised the dangerous effect of pesticides that has continued almost unabated. Um, 1969, Cleveland's Cuyahoga River, River literally caught on fire. Um, it was a time where uh, environmental degradation was becoming more and more acute. Deeper still, there were also protests and teach-ins against the Vietnam War and American imperialism. And Senator Gaylord Nelson actually called for Earth Day as a moment of reflection and thinking and his idea as he first began it was that it should be teach-ins on deep ecology and environmentalism akin to the teach-ins that were going on around Vietnam War and uh, U.S. imperialism. So the ties between protest, between deep political education and Earth Day, at least in its origin, really needs to be lifted up. And go ahead, Michael. Well, uh, there's a lot there, and I'm, I'm just thinking about you know what it must have been like to be organizing in those spaces at that time, and and it makes me think about the uh, the way that um, 
intersectionality around environmentalism and racism and uh, patriarchy and uh, and poverty that these are things that we have, we've had to work our way back to as a movement over the years. Uh, but uh, it, it you know the roots of that were there. And, and I think in the next chapter of this story, you're going to talk about maybe how we, we, maybe not we per se, but as the environment movement or the green politics came to be understood, moved away from some of those roots. You know, Michael, I really appreciate you pointing out the, the glaring uh, intersectionality that if you have the perspective and lens of understanding the reality of white supremacy, imperialism, capitalism, and patriarchy, that the thing about that lens, it's like eyeglasses, right? It helps you see things. It helps you understand actually what you're looking at. And of course, the reality was there, but as you correctly uh, assess for so many people that were organizing at that time, uh, they weren't making the connections, or at least not enough people were making the connections. And certainly they were, those connections were not being made across the movement so that it became a narrative. That's why the environmental movement became so white. Uh, it's why white feminism became a thing as opposed to just feminism. It, it's an example of how the, the roots of what became, um, silos around issue organizing rather than the understanding that really social change and social justice and social and racial justice and deep ecology are all interconnected. Uh, and the only way to succeed is to win across all of those uh, by actually taking and exercising uh, power. And I think it's worth pointing out that because of that siloization the Earth Day that I began to experience as I was coming up and and really becoming conscious of it uh, was woeful. It was a level of greenwashing that I think that current viewers and listeners who are not of my generation uh, might find laughable. Because I'll tell you, Michael, as you know, and perhaps some of you watching, uh, listening to a Green Way Forward know, I had the honor of being one of the co-founders of the Green Party of Texas in the late 1990s. And our very first event that we did as a public outreach tool was a Earth Day event in Houston, Texas in 1997 or 98. But here's the kicker, Michael. It was the Shell Oil Earth Day. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment, folks. Shell Oil, uh, killer of uh, Ken Sarawiwa, uh, d destroyer of uh, ecosystems across the planet. Like, you know, there are no good oil companies, right? But, but Shell Oil is a particularly horrific example of it. Um, and, and that was the Earth Day sponsor, and it was greenwashing at its absolute worst. Uh, that, I think... Um, was the backdrop for the global justice movement. And I do want to lift up the fact that a lot of people in the late 1990s, early 2000s began to help me understand intersectionality in a different way and help to see the connections between ecology, peace, justice, democracy, which of course happened to be the four pillars of the International Green Party movement. And I think as as bad as Earth Day brought to you by Shell Oil is, and yes, I mean, that's something that it, someone making a, a satirical meme would probably 
put together, right? Not thinking that that was actually a reality at at one point in the country. I mean, let's be honest, Michael. If if it were if if it were Saturday Night Live, that would be a funny skit, right? Right. It would but, be comedy, but because but, it's true, it's tragedy. But let's not pat ourselves in the back too hard because it's not uncommon for a mainstream Earth Day event right here and now to be sponsored by Citibank or Chase Manhattan or any number of the financial institutions that uh, profit from the sale of oil and, and the fossil fuel economy and are part of the power structure that are a barrier to human development in trying to overcome the threat that climate catastrophe poses to us. So it's still there. They've gotten better about masking uh, how the power structure tries to co-opt Earth Day. But we still have a lot of work to do, of course. We do indeed. But you know, Michael, I'll tell you, there's a lot of work being done. And some of it is like, actually pretty darn exciting. I agree. And but but before we get to some of the bigger picture work, I, I want you to tell me more about the event that you're speaking at. So who are the associated students and what's the event that you're speaking at? And what are you planning on saying there? If you can give us a, a taste. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'd love to actually talk about that. So uh, associated students is actually the student union at Humboldt state university. Uh, and, you know, uh, we have, and I have good relation with individual professors at Humboldt state university. I have great and we at Cooperation Humboldt and, and the local Green Party have great relationships with several student organizations at Humboldt State University. We do not have a great relationship with the administration at Humboldt State University. I'm going to name that. And a big part of that is because as part of the California State University system, the CSU, we have seen a horrific corporatization uh, of that institution. Uh Radical professors are being squeezed uh, in virtually every direction. Um, you know, there was a, a horrific murder of a young black student at Humboldt State two years ago, for which there have still not been charges, although it's pretty clear from all of the uh, cursory evidence uh, what happened. Uh, uh, it's the... Uh, Josiah Lawson case. There's an ongoing uh, militant student effort for justice for Josiah happening that uh, I and the Green Party have been uh, part of, certainly not leading, but part of uh, trying to lend our voices. So it was a great honor for me uh, to have associated students reach out and ask me to be the keynote speaker. I frequently speak at, again, uh, guest lectures in key uh, places but it's rare that the Green Party has allowed such a wide platform. Uh, and frankly, I'm going to be actually talking about the ties between uh, the corporatization uh, of the university, the corporatization of our economy, uh, and the destruction that is happening. Uh, and I'm going to encourage uh, even more militancy on that campus. Um, I am going to share my experience as a student radical in the anti-apartheid movement uh, and the lessons that I learned about when you follow the rules of what the administration tells you to do, they pat you on the head and utterly and completely ignore your calls for change, but that when you take over a Board of Regents meeting and refuse to leave and call the media and, frankly, fuck shit up – that you can actually exercise some real power and extract some concessions uh, out of the power structure. So I'm going to go there. 
So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to lift up the new radical work that I'm seeing happening, not only at Humboldt State, uh, but I'm seeing across California, the U.S. and the world as the examples of what we should be doing. That's fantastic, David. And there's a lot there for Greens and allies in our audience to draw from, from establishing relationships with professors at local higher educational institutions and and also wherever you can, of course, establishing relationships with students and student groups there. But for those of us Greens who have maybe a little bit of gray in our beards, it's at least initially easier to uh, to reach out to professors in related fields like political science and the environment and social justice than maybe making direct contact to students and, and seeming like we're trying to blend in. Uh, but... Also, Hello, the, the message kids. that you're bringing to them is important too. Right, right. No, and and again, the, the for me, the um, the thing that uh, I do want to underscore is like as an organizer, you immediately went to how do we build relationships? Uh, you know, hat tip to Jane McAuley, who always is reminding us that organizing organizing is all about building relationships, and not but and substantively. We have to have courage to actually name the relationship of both power, mm -hmm. power over dynamics, and who has it and who doesn't, and how we're going to actually. And for me, I definitely want to extract concessions in the immediate right now from the power structure. But Michael, as you know, I don't make any bones about it. I'm a straight up revolutionary. I want to restructure our current social, political, and economic institutions. I want to transform everything. Uh, and I think that we have to have the courage to say that. And we also have to recognize that we can do this. Systemic structural change has been made and it's critically important that we understand that militant disruption is a powerful tactic that has been part of every successful social change movement. It's not the only tactic. It's not a strategy in and of itself, but it is a tactic that when employed in service of a larger strategy, it is a component part of actually winning. And that I think is a great theme for us to reflect on this Earth Day. And that's why one of the things I wanted us to discuss for this episode is the Extinction Rebellion. And Extinction Rebellion is a movement and an organization that many in our audience may have heard about over the last week. They have been conducting some very high profile, militant, nonviolent, civil disobedient actions, uh, especially in the UK, in London and, and other uh, large population cities there. But also they had actions in New York City and in many parts of Europe. And the Extinction Rebellion is interesting and I think should be specifically interesting to Greens and Green allies for a few reasons. One is their message is very much in line with what the Green Party in the United States has been calling for in terms of drastic, drastic scale action in an eco-socialist direction to mitigate the worst uh, effects of climate change and, and that an eco-socialist green new deal, a world war two scale mobilization transformation of our entire society is what's necessary to do that. So that gets back to the extinction rebellion first principle that they're demanding that politicians tell the truth 
about number one, the intensity of the emergency of climate change, and number two, the drastic action that is necessary to to address the emergency of climate change. And this even strikes to a lot of what we hear from actual climate scientists, many of whom are they are operating in what they think are the best interests of the people. But uh, the estimates that we hear from the International Panel on Climate Change that comes out in those reports that make the headlines, even as dire as those sound, there are individual scientists who participate in that panel who say, look, that's the consensus message that we got thousands of climate scientists to agree on. It's very conservative. If you want a more accurate picture of, of what the threat of climate change looks like, take the worst projections from an IPCC report and then double it. And that's actually closer to what we're most likely to see. And so you have the IPCC watering down their threat assessments around climate change. Then the politicians and the corporate media water that down even more. And, and so you, and then you have the, the nonprofit organizations like 350.org and, and other environmental groups, which have adopted a logic that we can't sound too dire about climate change because if we do, then it's going to demobilize people. It's going to demotivate people. It's going to stop people from getting involved. And Extinction Rebellion ha- completely rejects that logic. They say that we must be honest just as a moral imperative, but also because that is what it's going to take to to get the kind of action that we need to force our governments, to force our society to transform in the way it needs to transform to address these threats. And uh, before I get on to maybe some of the operational methodology of Extinction Rebellion and, and some of the traditions that they're drawing from, I just wanted to give you, David, a chance to to respond to that, if you had any feedback or questions or comments uh, after hearing all that from me. <laughs> well, you know, I think that you, you've nailed it, uh, Michael. And I do want to underscore that what we know, what the folks at Extinction Rebellion know, what the climate scientists know, uh, is that we are facing an unprecedented global emergency. Life as we know it is, in fact, in crisis. All the scientific data, all the scientists agree that we literally entered abrupt climate breakdown and collapse. We're also in the midst of a mass extinction. It's the sixth great extinction. There's only been five on the history of planet Earth. This one is literally the Anthropocene. Human beings are causing uh, 200 species a day are going extinct. So the uh, that that's the ecological crisis. I want to point out that that is leading to or connected to an economic crisis of capitalism. Capitalism is not just causing the ecological destruction, as horrific as that is, but capitalism itself is in crisis because it's coming to its natural end because it, and that's why austerity is turning on itself. So we're seeing an ecological crisis. We're seeing an economic crisis and that's leading the political crisis, which is why fascism is emerging in uh, not only in this country, but across the globe in ways that we haven't seen in the 1930s, because it the current political situation, uh, po- political system 
can't address the actual problems. So when you lay out Extension Rebellion's moral imperative to tell the truth and its correct assessment that only truth-telling about uh, the level of the emergency, I want to underscore it's an ecological crisis, it's an economic crisis, and it's a political crisis. Absolutely. And Roger Hallam, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion in the UK, is very clear that if we do not take immediate drastic action to address these problems, then it it further paves the road for fascism. Because when you're talking about um, a you know possible die-off of billions of human beings uh, before the next uh, century, then that is that is going to lead to the elites taking further and further more repressive and authoritarian actions to preserve whatever it is that they have. And that's the trend line that we've been seeing so far. And so we, we must fight for eco-socialism or there will be some kind of dystopian uh, eco-fascism or, or just, uh, or just fascism of any other stripe. Um, so let's talk about some of the other aspects of Extinction Rebellion. If you want to check out their website, and I encourage people to do that, you can go to rebellion.earth. Again, that's rebellion.earth. And so we've talked about the, uh, the message that Extinction Rebellion is conveying in terms of the uh, drastic nature of the emergency that we face. They're also calling for equally drastic measures to uh, to take on that challenge, and they're calling for 100 percent uh, fossil free, uh, carbon free uh, society by 2025, which even beats the Green New Deal uh, it, as the Green Party of the United States advocates for it by five years. We usually use 2030 as our benchmark. They're calling for 2025. That's great, uh, and that's another thing that I find and, very and attractive way, about this group. Can we say I yeah. want to repeat that? Not. Net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2025. I mean, it's 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 a staggering uh, approach. Right uh, here in New York State, the so-called progressive climate bill, the Community Climate Protection Act, they're calling for by 2050, uh, and and then they're maybe only calling for like a 50 percent reduction by 2030. Now, of course, we know that if if that's what you fight for, then the politicians will ultimately pass a bill saying, well, let's go net zero by 2075. And, you know, it's, it's, so it's just a completely backwards approach to uh, negotiation and, and making demands, especially when you have something that is so high stakes as the fate of human civilization on the planet. So the goals that they're asking for are right in line with Green Party uh, values. And they are calling for uh, rebellion and nonviolent revolution as the necessary means to forcing our existing governments to make this transition. And this gets more into the operational methodology and philosophy behind Extinction Rebellion. Roger Hallam, both from his his, uh, speaking that I've heard and some of the writing behind Extinction Rebellion, they are drawing a fair amount from the Eugene Sharp School of Nonviolent uh, Civil Disobedience and Resistance. And Eugene Sharp might be a name that's familiar to some of our audience. He was the founder of the Albert Einstein uh, Institute, which was known for 
uh, promoting uh, specific forms of nonviolent civil disobedience throughout the world. Some of the different so-called color revolutions from the early 2000s and the 90s, like the Orange Revolution, I believe in the Ukraine, and other uh, organizations were very much motivated by Eugene Sharp's writings and the Albert Einstein Institute. And it calls for, and Extinction Rebellion is very clear about this, mobilizing 3.5% of the, of the entire population to be willing to engage in militant, nonviolent civil disobedient action in order to uh, force our demands from the existing power structure. And I have a lot of feelings about this. And one is that the Eugene Sharp School of Civil Disobedience, and again, I encourage people to do research on that, and maybe that's something we can unpack on a future episode of A Green Way Forward, certainly has a track record of effectiveness in terms of allowing a, a relatively large group of people to assimilate a school and methodology of strategy and tactics towards uh, launching social movements and civil disobedient movements within their respective countries and societies. Now, there are some questions in, in history about how the how Gene Sharp's work and how um, the institution that he worked with might have been financed by the CIA and the United States political establishment as a way of destabilizing governments and 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 certain institutions that they saw as being inhospitable to capitalism and that uh, this was all done under the framework of, of promoting democracy in the United States as a promoter of democracy. But really, they were just trying to topple, in many cases, dictators, but specifically dictators who were unfriendly to United States capitalist interests. And that when these uh, when these movements happen and were able to overthrow these uh, these regimes, Often what got replaced or what was put in place instead was just a neoliberal U.S. Uh, corporatist friendly government and and not the kind of flourishing of, of, of democracy that we might have seen. And so that has been a source of some criticism of the uh, Gene Sharp school of of protest and of resistance that has been promoted recently. Now I'm in no way accusing Roger uh, Hallam or Extinction Rebellion of, of being a, you know, a front group for uh, pro-capitalist neoliberal influence. Uh, Hallam and Extinction and Rebellion are very clear that, uh, I mean, they, they want to have a citizens assembly replace government functionally where people would be selected at random to serve in these citizen assemblies to represent everyday folks and to represent the interests of, of, of everyday people to, and that only through that mechanism that uh, we can, we can make the decisions that are necessary for the good of the planet, as opposed to just the good of, of the existing uh, power structure. Now, as Greens or as myself, I might have disagreements about that. But my point is that he's not doing this uh, and, and that Extinction Rebellion is not pursuing this methodology as uh, as knowing uh, patsies for, uh, you know, a kind of um, neoliberal order. Now, there, there, just one remaining question, though, is so leaving aside 
what the uh, motivations and the and the funding and the development of this particular school of of resistance is. Who cares who came up with it? Can it be used towards the purpose of of making the demands for eco-socialism and making the demands that we need for transforming our society to stop climate change? David, your thoughts? You know, uh, a lot there, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's really underscore, the, for me, the takeaways of Extinction Rebellion. Point one, tell the truth about the extent of the climate and ecological emergency. What we on A Green Way Forward want to add is also tell the truth about the economic and political crisis and interconnectedness of those things. Number two, Extinction Rebellion demands act now. Uh, government and social and economic institutions must act now to address climate change and biodiversity loss. And what we would say is restructuring society so that it is fundamentally just and fair. And the third thing that e- Extinction Rebellion is demanding is to go beyond politics, or at least beyond politics as it's currently thought about. Their call for creation of a citizens' assembly on climate and ecology that then leads government. Let's be clear, Michael, that is very much like a, the uh, concept of the Green New Deal as put forward by the U.S. Green Party uh, and by Jill Stein and Howie Hawkins and others uh, that talks about the local control uh, of some of those sort of key decisions. It really is about transforming how decisions are made and implemented and really employing the idea of grassroots democracy. So to me, uh, everything that you've said is super important. I also want to point out that one thing that's interesting about Extinction Rebellion is that it's coming out of uh, the UK. And you pointed out something to me, Michael, uh, about Extinction Rebellion and its uh, its existence in the UK that I'd l- encourage you to share with our viewers and listeners. Well, with Extinction Rebellion in the UK, there are connections that I've seen uh, with the Green Party of England and Wales there, which is really encouraging to see. And Extinction Rebellion, of course, as an organization, is not a partisan organization. They welcome participants uh, from people who vote for any party or people who don't vote at all. And they're very clear about that in their messaging. But it's heartening as someone who is frustrated by how many uh, 501c3s and many NGOs here will cozy up the Democrats while excluding people who are working to build uh, independent political alternatives that within an Extinction Rebellion at one of their, their launch events in October of 2018, they had Caroline Lucas, the Green Minister of Parliament, speak, and also a Green Minister of European Parliament, Molly Scott Cato. And if you look at Extinction Rebellion's documents about their network of allies and groups that they are working with, the Green Party of the UK is right there. And so that to me shows that they are, they, they are willing to back up their claim of transforming politics as usual and that they are willing to work with all allies who are committed to a similar vision and similar goals and that they're not just working within the, you know, the laborers and, and, and Tories or what have you. Um, so I think that's important and I think that points to opportunities as Extinction Rebellion gains momentum here in the United States, 
that this might be a space where Greens, both as allies and as candidates, can work and build relationships in good faith and in honesty and in a truly open environment. Whereas in a lot of other supposedly nonpartisan, supposedly progressive, supposedly environmentally friendly groups, when as a green, I enter those spaces, I'm always detecting the kind of wink, wink, say no more affiliations with the Democratic Party. And whenever as a green uh, who wants to speak on behalf of the Green Party or, uh, or in, and as an ally with that movement, all of a sudden they get very cautious about letting political people speak at an event or, or uh, talk about their organization at an event. You know, Michael, I'm, I'm so glad you made that point, right? Number one, the, the comfort that Extinction Rebellion has with the Green Party in the UK. Also, the, the fact that the, the Extinction Rebellion is very clear that they are not the front group are in lockstep with any political party, but they truly welcome people, people of all political parties or no party at all to work with them. And they actually mean it, which is to say, uh, if you are actually with us, we will welcome you, even if you're a part of any political party or none at all. I have found in the in the U.S., especially, and I have to say it, the Sunrise Movement itself is so tied to the leadership of the Democratic Party that they they are not actually sincere. They will allow Democrats, uh, but they don't allow Greens or at least don't welcome Greens. There are some notable exceptions and we need to do that. And the last thing that I really want to point out, and that is the incredible importance of distinguishing in the Democratic Party between the leadership of the Democratic Party who are completely tied to the neoliberal agenda and the corporatist and Wall Street and the rank and file members of the Democratic Party who are infinitely more progressive. And frankly, we need to win those people over. And that's about building relationships and not only being patient, but also being willing to actually listen to them, grapple with them and engage them in a way that dogmatic sectarian uh, approach just does not do. Absolutely, David. And I think that points to um, where the political independence that Extinction Rebellion has been able to demonstrate in part stems from their financial independence, that they are not locked into a kind of uh, foundation funding model that sim- that groups here in the United States have been that has served to blunt both their message and their tactics, but also uh, has constrained them, or they've you know happily cooperated with uh, in with direction to not work outside of the Democratic Party. And so while Extinction Rebellion has received some foundation money, at least at their start, they receive money from groups like the Gorilla Foundation. Uh, a lot of their, the majority of their current budget is from crowdfunding. And they right. have been raising, you know, mid to like middle six figures in terms of their uh, their current operating budget just through crowdfunded donations online. And that is something that... And in fact... Go ahead. In fact, it's 65% of their funding is coming from crowdfunding, ordinary people uh, chipping in. It really does show the power uh, that people have if we act collectively. 
Right. And that is a lesson both for uh, Greens as we try to uh, raise the resources that we need for our campaigns, that there's a lot of power in grassroots contributions, and we have to build our skills at that because as for those of us who are doing electoral work, foundation funding isn't even an option for us and it wouldn't be a good idea anyway, even if it was. But also as we try to uh, build and participate in and build relationships with non-electoral work, uh, with issue-driven work and uh, movement-driven work to uh, build the kind of, of solidarity institutions that we need to help people now and to prove the example of, of what we're fighting for in larger society, that uh, we there is funding out there uh, beyond just the, the standard charitable organizations and foundations that the orthodoxy of, of fundraising and development might lead people to. So, David, what, any thoughts that you have more on this uh, connection between financial independence and political independence for a group like Extinction Rebellion? Well, I think that you've really done a wonderful job, Michael, of actually pointing out that political independence and financial independence are actually hand in hand. Too often have we seen the fundraising tail wag the movement dog. Uh, and we have to be clear that in this country, in the United States of America, the creation of the nonprofit industrial complex was an intentional effort to de-radicalize social movements to make them dependent on nonprofits and tax deductible donations. So I think it's really important that we have to understand the truth of this adage. Ain't nobody going to fund our liberation but ourselves. Um, we have to actually be willing to actually create a culture of both collective fundraising, uh, 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 giving both volunteer time, but also be willing to pay money towards efforts to hire at, uh, at stipended levels for people to actually become social change agents and be able to dedicate themselves full time to that. And so that's really important to me. I also want to take this moment to really point out the, the ties between the economics and the ties uh, to ecology and why for me, I've re like Earth Day, let's celebrate it. Uh, I'm especially happy that I've been seeing the development of Earth Week celebrations that really go deeper and get back to the teach-in approach that we described at the very beginning of the show. And for me, one of the things that's most exciting is to see the development of movements from Earth Day to May Day. Uh, that is uh, April 22 uh, through May 1, and to make the ties between social justice and ecological justice, the red and the green. And I want to lift up the Wisconsin Green Party as one of the first places where I saw Earth Day to May Day celebrations take place. And I'd like to encourage our viewer listeners to be thinking about that. And let's make uh, 2020 an Earth Day to May Day uh, celebration, not just an Earth Week, but Earth Day to May Day. Absolutely. And Earth Day to May Day was uh, a very powerful uh, week in, in 2014 when uh, that was the same year as the People's Climate Mobilization March in New York City. And a lot of critiques about how that march was carried out that I think is uh, that Extinction Rebellion and groups like it are trying to rectify. And uh, but but around that time, there was an Earth Day to May Day energy that I think was strong. Uh, I personally would like to see it even go further. I want as eco-socialists for us to make 
tax day to Earth Day to May Day, the kind of high holy days of eco-socialism, that on tax day, we're talking about how do we actually spend our uh, our resources as a society as we're you know filing our our, our taxes uh, as citizens and as as residents, and then on Earth Day uh, and May Day, connecting how are we structuring our society to um, in favor of of the planet and of people and workers over profit. And, and looking at the entire picture there of, of how do we transform our society? How are we currently spending all of our resources? And then moving towards how do we make the demand of transforming our society so that our, our resources, our, uh, our output as a society is distributed equitably and justly and sustainably for people and planet over profit. Damn, Michael O'Neill. I got to say, like, uh, I love working with you because it is not uh, my normal practice to actually uh, be pushed deeper and further. Uh, but I love it when it happens. Uh, and you definitely did so. Uh, and I'm with you. You know what? I'm going to uh, start thinking about and grappling about how to create the narrative of from tax day to Earth Day to May Day uh, to really underscore that because the, the, we know uh, from the last show that you did uh, uh, the, the ties between uh, U.S. taxing uh, sy- systems and U.S. imperialism and how that works. And, of course, Earth Day to May Day. So uh, what a great way to end this program. Uh, I will encourage, again, viewers and listeners, please share this stream on your own page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to us on a podcast, Please share this podcast with others and please go to the website, a greenwayforward.org and sign up. Uh, before we uh, end the show, though, I want to remind folks of two things. One, next week we will, in fact, uh, be having a program. It's on April 29th. So we'll be talking about the buildup to May Day. We'll go into the history, but maybe Michael and I will play a little bit with Tax Day to Earth Day to May Day. And before we sign off, Michael O'Neill, I want to give you a chance for any final thoughts. Yeah. So I just wanted to encourage people to go to rebellion.earth to check out Extinction Rebellion and check out their their map of local Extinction Rebellion groups in the United States, because you will see that there is a lot of open space there where there are not currently local Extinction Rebellion groups. And if this is a movement that really resonates with you, then I encourage you to check them out, read up on their statement of principles, and so much of their information about how they work is online. Uh, Use that to fuel your own ongoing development as organizers and as strategists, and look to see where uh, you might be able to start a group in your own community or participate in a group that's starting in your community and and build these necessary relationships with uh, people who uh, have demonstrated already a an inspiring and beautiful commitment to uh, principles and a vision that we share. So well said, Michael. I just want to remind folks that it is only through building relationships and acting in a collective way can we create the world that we so desperately need and so richly deserve. Thanks for joining us on A Green Way Forward. Peace. A Green Way Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. 
Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.